Hello and welcome to Practical Conversational Hypnosis. My name is Aaron Ellis. I'm a clinical hypnotherapist and advanced conversational hypnotherapist. And I'm recording this course to give you practical persuasion tools that will allow you to enrich your life, as well as the lives of those around you. This course is not long. I don't believe in waffling on for hours and hours about abstract theory, aiming just to bulk up the course so that I can bulk up the price. No, this course is about what you can get out of it. By the time you finish, you'll be able to understand how to communicate with people on a level that really makes an impact. You'll be able to brush aside the objections and interruptions that you've been facing up until now and actually get through to people in a way that makes a difference. I'm really sure that you're going to love this course. There's been much thought, much work, and over six years research has gone into it, and I welcome your feedback. Let's lay the foundation, then build the skyscraper. These first few sections of the course will focus on the inner game. This is the foundation of effective persuasion, and is by far the most important part of this course. Let me say that again. The inner game is by far the most important part of this course. If we skip it and move straight to the techniques, we'll be sabotaging ourselves. The inner game is the foundation, so we need to take time to build a solid foundation, and then on top of that, you'll be able to build and construct a magnificent skyscraper. Without a solid inner game, the techniques simply have no power. So if you've struggled in the past with hypnosis or to persuade people, and despite having perfect technique, you had better believe that it was lack of the inner game foundations that made the difference. Covert hypnosis made simple. People often ask if there's a difference between conversational hypnosis and covert hypnosis. Well, yes and no. Technically, conversational hypnosis is any form of hypnotic influence that occurs during a conversation, and that can be it doesn't necessarily have to be covert. Covert hypnosis, on the other hand, is any influence that occurs without the conscious awareness of the person being influenced. However, that doesn't necessarily have to occur during a conversation. If that doesn't make sense, don't worry about it. The two are basically the same thing. Now, before we move on, let's quickly clear up this idea of hypnosis, because often hypnosis is a little bit misunderstood. So let's put all the superstition and exaggeration out of our minds for a second and look at hypnosis as any influence that occurs at a subconscious level. And understand this as any change that occurs at the level of emotion, imaginations and habits. So basically any real and powerful change that you create. So in this course, you're going to learn how to create real powerful changes in ordinary conversations. The Giants, Milton Erickson, NLP and beyond. Many people just say that conversational hypnosis is basically NLP in a new package. NLP, or Neuro-Linguistic Programming, is a system of modeling which aims to break down the behaviors of successful people into techniques that we can all copy. And NLP is best known for its modeling of therapists such as the famous hypnotist Milton Erickson. Milton Erickson was known for indirect hypnosis and being able to create incredible transformations with his clients through merely asking questions, telling stories that were also laden with covert hypnotic patterns. So NLP created many techniques from this modeling, such as embedded commands, hypnotic language patterns and beyond. However, NLP is not the last word when it comes to conversational hypnosis, particularly not the way that I learnt it and the way that I teach it. I agree with Milton Erickson when he said, NLP got me down to a nutshell. Unfortunately, they left out the nut and only took the shell. So in this course, we're going to go beyond Erickson and look at many other people who are masters of influence, from monarchs to billionaires and even best-selling writers. So rather than teaching the shell of one man's brilliance, we're going to be, as the physicists would say, stand on the shoulders of the giants of the industry. The win-win formula, how to get your own way, but still feel good about it. Some people come to conversational hypnosis from an unhealthy point of view. 
They want to gain tools and techniques to trick other people, to get one over them and manipulate them for their own benefit. To be an effective persuader of people, to be looked up to, trusted and responded to, you need to come to this from a perspective of win-win. If you benefit to someone else's detriment by tricking them, even if they don't realise, you haven't won. Why? Because people are smarter than we give them credit for, and at some level, they'll realise that they've been taken for a ride, and the next time around, they'll be far less likely to trust you. And people are very perceptive when it comes to intuitive judgments of others, and using covert hypnosis to others' detriment will show at some level in the way that you behave and act. And using covert hypnosis to help other people is going to have the exact opposite effect, and people will love you for it. And as you'll come to realise the more we continue to this course, it's actually easy to get your own way when you help other people get their way, so you can go forth without guilt or worry. And the more that you learn about how to get what you want from life, the more the people that you care about and deal with will benefit too. And the stories in the next chapter will bring this message home and teach you a lesson in persuasion that seems simple but is very powerful. Persuasion Secrets from a Millionaire, a Billionaire and the Queen of England There's an old story about Queen Victoria and I'm not sure if it's true and even if it is, it's been a long time, so I've you know, really forgotten the details, but this is the essence. So the lessons from the Queen. The Queen was hoping to appoint someone to a position of power and had two fine candidates to choose from. The first candidate came from their meeting with flair and charisma, and he was passionate and persuasive, and he left the young Queen pretty impressed. And when her husband asked her how the meeting went, she said, It was amazing. He made me believe that he was the most important man in the world. And the next day, the Queen met with the second candidate, and he was a little quieter and a little less impressive. And he talked well, but as well as telling grand stories, he also asked questions and listened intently. And very soon, the Queen found herself talking to him as, as if they were old friends. And that night... Prince Albert asked his wife, how did the meeting go today? And the Queen smiled and said that it was amazing. He made me believe that I am the most important person in the world. Now who do you think the Queen chose to appoint? The millionaire and best-selling author. The late Stephen Covey wrote a phenomenal book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the book still lines the shelves of nearly every executive and entrepreneur in the Western world. And it sold probably close to 20 million copies during his lifetime. And Cuppy founded a consulting company that had a stack of Fortune 500 companies and eminent businesses as clients, and it still thrives now. And there were many secrets to his success. One of the most striking is also one of the seven habits. And it's this. Seek first to understand, and then be understood. In that order, it's truly staggering how many people get this wrong, and more often than not, they completely ignore step one. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Tattoo this on your forehead, because it'll change your life. The Billionaire and Wall Street Tycoon Vernon Baruch was born in 1870. He made a fortune as an investor and spent his old age as a highly regarded political consultant, advising President Woodrow Wilson, among others. And he knew how to get his own way, to the point that even presidents and prime ministers rushed to do what he advised. And he had one rule, one secret, and this is it. Roughly, he said, you find out what people want, and then you show them how to get it. Now this is one of those sayings that I want you to get tattooed and soon put it on your forehead and find out what other people want and then you'll be able to show them how to get it. What do these three stories have in common? The Queen, the Millionaire and the Billionaire, they're all pretty much the same lesson. 
make people feel important. Understand who they are, find out what they want, and teach them how to get it. It seems simple. Alarmingly though, most people do none of the above. And it's easy to consciously think, oh yes, seek first to understand, gotcha. But in reality, of course, the ego gets in the way. And people jump to make their voice heard, or to get their point across, and try to seem like they're the centre of the universe. Whilst in all probability, you are the centre of your universe, don't make the mistake that you're the centre of everyone else's as well. And this really does take practice, so you've got to make a conscious effort. Tattooing it on your forehead is a bit extreme, I admit, but this is how what I would do. I'd write these out on three, these three phrases on separate pieces of paper. So number one is, make people feel important. Number two, you find out what people want, then you show them how to get it. Number three, seek first to understand, and then to be understood. And stick each of these little pieces of paper somewhere obvious so that you see them all the time, your bedroom wall, your desk, on the fridge. And make these three rules habits and not just catchy phrases and it will totally change your life. So go ahead do that now and I'll see you in the next section. It's time to get out of your own way. So when you ask someone what are their barriers to persuading others, you'll hear lots of excuses such as people are stubborn, they just won't listen, they never let me get a word in, they judge me before they know me, I never had a chance, they just didn't want to hear what I had to say. And if we push past these outer layers and we get them to delve a little bit deeper, you'll start to hear things like, the truth is I'm just not confident, I'm shy, I'm not a really persuasive person, People just don't like me. I'm not like one of those guys. Does this ring any bells? These excuses aren't real. They're not set in stone. They're not facts. They're just beliefs. And beliefs can be changed. As you'll very soon learn that in order to become a successful persuader, it's time to get out of your own way and kick these beliefs in the butt. So let's look at reference experiences. When you develop a belief, it starts with a suspicion and then it gets fed. One failure after another may have compounded the belief in you or someone you know that, you know, I'm just not a persuasive person. And this belief then sabotages their behavior and then they act in a way that confirms that belief and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the first step is to change your filter. We need to change the way that we process, interpret, and frame events in our lives. So rather than interpreting a failure as an all-conclusive statement about who you are, just think, I've learned something useful, and laugh it off. Take the lessons and just move on. And as soon as you've reframed failure into something positive, a learning experience, then things suddenly get flipped upside down. And it's a quick and easy shift to make, but it's something that you have to put energy into and let it sink in. And I'm sure you've probably heard it before, but has it really clicked? Failure doesn't mean anything except for the fact that you're learning. Got it? Okay, then what happens? So with this change of filter, rather than collecting proof of your old limiting beliefs, you collect learning experiences and ideas to improve your persuasion powers. So then you start getting better at this, which means that you gradually start achieving some successes. And the more successes you achieve, the more reference experiences you have that start to confirm that this is a positive belief and I am becoming a master persuader. So eventually this belief becomes a reality and the whole process builds itself into a naturally evolving cycle. And it all begins with that one quick, simple and easy change and filter. And it's like a snowball rolling down a mountain. The new positive belief goes to work on itself and becomes bigger. Now don't think too hard on this. For the moment, just relax and just let it sink in. 
and remind yourself of it every now and then. But for most of the part, just keep on doing your thing without forcing yourself to analyse every little moment. Now I can guess what many of you are thinking. Oh, well that's very good for other people, but, but I'm special. I've got a secret problem that, that none of you could even imagine. Does that sound right? Because many people have this secret limitation or excuse and it's hidden away in their mind, preventing them from getting out of their own way and moving forward. But remember this ancient personal development adage, the more personal the problem, the more universal. So the more you think that your hidden deep and secret excuse is unique to you, the more everyone else probably has a similar unique excuse of their own. So get over it, whatever it is, and get out of your own way. Okay, so I think that I've used up my exclamation mark quota for this course right now. So let's move on and look at these ever so crucial part of rapport. Effortless rapport that forms a deep connection. If you want to persuade someone, you have to get them on your side. Well, you don't have to, but it's certainly easier. Rapport is a connection between two people, when your attention is on each other and you feel as though you're both on the same wavelength. Productive meetings and conversations where change takes place are usually caused by deep rapport. You've experienced this state of rapport many times in the past, when you've been talking to friends and enjoying their company, or having a really good deep conversation with someone. Rapport isn't just one-on-one -on -one, of course. A good speaker connects with their audience. In other words, a good speaker engages in rapport with his or her audience. So how do we create this rapport? At the start of this course, I talked to you about NLP, the process of modeling successful behaviors and patterns. And NLP is big on rapport. The trouble is, I think that they've got it wrong. They teach that if you want to get in rapport with someone, you must match and mirror. You subtly mimic their body language, movements and gestures to subconsciously project that you two are alike. NLP has a host of tricks to make this process more subtle, but at the most basic level, that's what it boils down to. So how did NLP come to the conclusion that reflecting gestures is the key to successful communication? Simple. They watched. So if you go to a cafe or coffee shop or bar, and just literally watch people in action. Look at the intimate couples and the laughing friends and observe their body language. And you'll find that they're often adopting the same pose, sitting the same way. And that's a great observation, but the process doesn't necessarily work in reverse. Sure, being in rapport may cause you to mirror each other's body language, but mirroring each other's body language does not necessarily cause you to be in rapport. It's like saying that rich people spend a lot of money, therefore in order to be rich you have to spend a lot of money. Now to give NLP its dues, there is a little sense behind matching and mirroring body language. After all, physiologically it does affect the mind. So if you for example just lean back in your chair now, smile, look relaxed, and just hold that relaxed smiling pose for 30 seconds to a minute, making it look and feel as realistic as possible. And the chances are you'll begin to feel good as a result because you're triggering physiological associations to happiness. However, true happiness comes from a lot more than just changing your body language. And true rapport is also caused by a lot more factors than just changing your body language. So note for the angry NLPers out there, sensible people would not believe the, the barrage of, of angry comments you get when you dispel NLP. So no doubt this course will you know, trigger a few people. But that's good, because we want to learn new things right. So I'd be doing you a disservice if I just stuck to the old-fashioned beliefs and taught you the same stuff as everyone else. How to really create good rapport. Okay, so the, now that I've put you on the right track of and got rid of that old matching and mirroring myth, 
let's look at how to actually create really good rapport. So do you know what? It's actually time to go back to the basics. Dale Carnegie, the author of How to Win Friends and Influence People. This is just basic stuff. Rapport is a connection. So stop thinking about fancy techniques and just get out there and start connecting. Because the biggest thing that stops students of conversational hypnosis from succeeding in rapport is this. They simply try too hard. You can't force friendships. You can't force rapport. Trying only cancels out that subtle, natural processes that, that are recurring behind the scenes. And trying means that you start to consciously sabotage a subconscious process. It's like trying to force yourself to fall asleep and willing yourself unconscious. It just doesn't work. But you can create rapport and you can deliberately make it happen in almost all cases. So here's my four-step rapport formula. Number one, tattoo it on your head. Okay, not literally, but I want you to revisit that earlier chapter where I taught you the secrets from the millionaire, the billionaire, and the Queen of England. And remember those three phrases that I told you about that I said tattoo them on your head. Well, they are 110% the key to building rapport. And putting them to work alone will put you head and shoulders above 99% of the planet. And this becomes way more powerful when you prove it. So show people that you understand where they are, what they want, and most importantly, who they are. Use words and tell stories to pace their reality and make it clear that you get them. And this is fantastically powerful as it shows them that you live in their world. And remember that everyone exists in their own reality, their own interpretation of the world, which is colored by their own beliefs, their prejudices, fears, desires. And people are not in rapport unless you're both speaking from that same reality. So when creating change, your ultimate goal will be to join them in your reality. But before you can bring them into your world, you must first join them in their world. And in order to do this, make it clear that you're right there with them. Of course, before you can do this, you have to actually be right there. So listen, engage, and put yourself in their shoes. Use your imagination and just see where it takes you. By the way, for more information on the idea of how to shake up people's realities, I'm going to put a little extra bonus section at the end here called the problem shaker. So, number two, you want to fake it. So you know what it's like when you're in rapport. You've been there a thousand times before with friends, family, and other people that you get on with. And inside your mind, you have all the rapport blueprint. So in order to create that rapport deliberately, remember and revivify the feelings that you get when you're naturally in rapport with your friends. And just do this in a safe context first. At home, practice filling yourself with the feelings that you get when you're in rapport with your best friend. And mentally remember the times that you've had when you felt easy and powerful connections with other people. And focus first on the memory. And then identify that feeling. And then focus instead on that. Practice bringing this feeling into your life with ease. And keep exercising those mental muscles until you can make that feeling happen on demand. Whenever and wherever you want it to. And this gives you the keys to generating instant rapport at your beck and call. So how does this work? The feeling of rapport isn't some weird magic that affects those around you. It's actually very simple. The way that you feel affects the way you behave. And when you're feeling grumpy, you act in a different way to when you're feeling happy. And your posture will naturally change too. The tone of your voice will naturally change. Your gestures and rate of speech will change. Even your words will naturally change depending on the emotional state that you're in. So faking it at first makes everything just happen automatically as your subconscious mind carries on these complex 
yet powerful processes without you having to even think about it. Number three, always be the calmest person in the room. So there's a guy on the internet called Marcus Oki from yourcharismacoach.com and I learned from him a powerful lesson in rapport and persuasion. Always be the calmest person in the room. The calmest person in the room is in the most control. The person who feels the most at home, the person who feels the most secure is the most in control. People don't like to connect with an agitated person because those feelings seem to poison the interaction. So as you focus on increasing the feelings of rapport, also make a conscious effort to be calm. And it becomes easy with practice. So you make it your intention to always be the calmest person in the room. And the dividends for this will pay for you huge. So remember, calm doesn't always mean dull. You can be animated, energetic and excited while still being calm and relaxed. Just don't be ruled by nervousness or stress and don't let your feelings be you know, pushed around by those you're with. So the calmest person in the room is the most powerful person in the room and it's the one that everyone else will want to be in rapport with. So being the calmest person in the room and those other peoples will try and create rapport with you. So putting it basically, if you are comfortable and you're in your own body, people will want to become in rapport with you. Number four, become a people person. And let's be honest, it's not easy to like people. We've all got faults and identifying them via a snap judgment when we, we have someone new is it's just human nature. And often I read that there's a cynic is someone who knows the value of everything but the price of nothing. And I think it was said by Oscar Wilde. And it's so much easier to connect with people and influence them if you actually like them. And for some of us, this actually takes some training. But train yourself because it's highly worth it. Okay, so that's literally the four-step rapport formula. It's, it's not much of these four steps. It's literally just four elements. So make them all part of your world and rapport will be easy, effortless and natural. These four steps are literally some of the most powerful things that I've learned on my journey towards mastering conversational hypnosis and just rapport in general. And I'm sure they're going to treat you very well indeed. Voice control. How to sound irresistibly persuasive. We've now laid the foundations for successful persuasion and it's time to build the skyscraper. The foundations that we've laid so far are life-changing, and now it's time to build on what we've created and look at the external techniques and behaviors to conversationally hypnotize and persuade. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a romantic comedy? If you have, there's no doubt that you'll come across the line said tearfully by the distraught heroine, it's not what you said, it's the way you said it. Funnily enough, she was right. How you sound when you talk is at least as important as what you actually say. The way you project your voice carries a host of undertones and implications. Some people seem to naturally have pleasant voices and others don't. Fortunately though, with a little practice, it's actually extremely easy to speak with a voice that projects authority and confidence and that's also pleasant to listen to and that also commands attention. All politicians know this. So when the famous former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was the leader of the opposition, she was often mocked for her shrill-sounding voice. And there's a story about her campaign manager bumping into the voice coach of the legendary Shakespeare actor Laurence Olivier. And he was on a train and he actually begged him to train the future Prime Minister to speak more persuasively. And he agreed, obviously. And Thatcher went on to govern the British government for over a decade. The two keys to a persuasive voice. Number one, project from down low, not up high. When most people talk, they project their voice from their mouth, nose, throat, or chest. And when they project from their nose or mouth, they send high-pitched and whining. And when they project from their nose, they sound nasally and unpleasant. But when you project from your chest, 
you'll sound normal, but we want to do better than normal. So I want you to try this exercise and it's a really easy way to understand how to project your voice. So it's called the voice projection exercise. So when you're alone and somewhere where you can speak out aloud without feeling embarrassed, do this. So first point to your nose and speak exaggeratedly if you are projecting from your nose and say, this is my nose. Next point to your mouth and speak exaggeratedly as if you were projecting from your throat and say, this is my mouth. And then do the same from your throat, chest and belly. And then notice that when you project from your belly, you take deeper breaths, we speak slower, and the voice is more calm, powerful and measured. And this is how we should talk. So we want to pr practice projecting from the belly and this alone will amplify and supercharge the persuasiveness of how you talk. Number two, the command tones. Basic English communication has three core inflections. The upward inflection at the end of a sentence indicates a question. An even or level inflection indicates a statement or a normal sentence. And a downward inflection indicates a command. So try saying this sentence with three different inflections and notice that they carry different ways and different meanings that they carry the way you say it. So first of all, a question. Today is a work day? Next, as a normal sentence, today is a work day. And then as a command, today is a work day. Do you notice the difference? So practice projecting your voice from the belly and using the command tonality when you want to create action. The other tonalities are useful as well, of course, but the command tonality is the key because it's the one that really indicates authority and therefore motivates people and gets them to do stuff. So when changing the way you project your voice, a lot of you will be breaking the habits of a lifetime and that's cool, but the rewards will pay off phenomenally as you start to notice that people will respond to you on a deeper and more meaningful level. Interpreting the silent story of body language. There are numerous books on how to read and interpret body language and they teach you that this gesture means this and that posture means this. And while this can sometimes be accurate, in the real world when you're in the middle of a dynamic, fast-moving conversation, getting out and translating from your book and trying to decode every movement isn't really practical. So instead, let's look where body language comes from and why people make the significant gestures that they do and be able to read people like a book without really having to think. So in order to do this, we're going to transport back to the dawn of human nature, to where the ancient tribal hunter-gatherer societies, and this is where all the instinctive habitual body language began to be shaped. And these messages were really simple. They all related to two things, territory and safety. When people are confident, they mean to portray their dominance by occupying more space and more territory and proving their safety. They'll often sit in a wide open posture, occupying a large amount of the seat and exposing vulnerable areas such as the neck, stomach, crutch, armpits even. And this proves that they feel safe and they're unafraid of attack. And it shows that they'll run the show and they're comfortable right where they are. And they'll walk tall and at a slow, relaxed pace and they're unafraid of being seen or spotted by enemies. When they gesture, it'll be measured and relaxed, as they have no nervousness or agitated energy. And these gestures of confidence get themselves as little, little space as possible. So they'll tend to sit bent up, hunched over in a small corner of the seat. They might have their legs crossed, arms folded, as to protect those vulnerable areas, maybe nervously scratching their neck as to protect this region too. They may walk quickly, stare at the ground as to avoid making eye contact. So the gestures tend to be erratic and nervous and they'll fidget or squirm with nervous energy, tapping. And this is the most basic story of body language and we can see it all around us today. We cover and often try deliberately 
to overcompensate for the gestures that we try to display. A teenager sprawled over an enormous park bench is a classic example of deliberate overcompensation for unconfident feelings. So body language is not often black and white. One unconfident sign means nothing. But if we look for a combination of signals that build up the narrative and feed into the story that this person is subconsciously and silently telling us with their body. Territory and space is not the only story. But this theme of confidence, safety and dominance is an all-consuming one. So train your eyes to notice this constant non-verbal story and you'll be amazed at how prevalent it is. How to speak hypnotically, language patterns and beyond. One of the most interesting things derived from an NLP study of the famous hypnotherapist Milton Erickson are hypnotic language patterns. These patterns are a way to structure language that enables you to communicate on multiple levels and therefore influence the subconscious mind without conscious interference. Like all hypnotic techniques, this is not some weird ninja woo-woo that has magical powers. It's simply a codified breakdown of what naturally persuasive people tend to say. So how do you use these hypnotic language patterns without sounding crazy? So the key to using these is just not knowing how to use them, but how to use them naturally so that they fit in with normal rhythms of conversation and so you don't sound like a wacko. So about 40 years ago, a linguist named John Grinder and a computer programmer named Richard Bandler sat down with a pen and paper and set about picking apart the conversational patterns of Milton Erickson. And Milton, Milton Erickson was a, a therapist and hypnotist based in Phoenix, Arizona, and he had lots of unusual methods. And Erickson noticed that when his clients came in to see him, they often phrased their problems in strange ways. They'd speak in such a way that their totally irrational problems somehow seemed real, concrete, and unchangeable. Dr. Erickson thought, if these patterns kept people trapped inside their problems, then they could probably be used to free people from their problems as well. So he began talking to his clients in that same language, feeding their patterns back to them. Patterns such as the bind, two ideas that are linked together. For example, the more you listen about language patterns, the more you'll notice people using them naturally in everyday speech. Then we have the double bind, the illusion of choice. So people find that they either find language patterns easy to use or simple to implement in daily communication. Then we have presuppositions. When you realize how easy it is to use these language patterns, you'll notice that you've already made a massive change in the way that you communicate. We also have embedded commands. So as you're hearing this, you'll discover more ways to use these patterns in your interactions. Cause-effect patterns. Just hearing this means you're learning about hypnotic language patterns. And because you're learning about these patterns, it means you can use them naturally in your everyday interactions. There's obviously a lot more language patterns and Grinder and Bandler broke these patterns down and called them the Milton model. And these patterns aren't logical, but they play into the way that the mind thinks and creates a compelling motivation for actions and beliefs. The Milton model today is generally used by therapists, businessmen and marketers to help them connect with people and to create change, to change people's beliefs, attitudes and to motivate them to take action. How to use hypnotic language patterns without sounding crazy. There are those people who say that these language patterns are pretty absurd and that they really couldn't be used in a real conversation. They think that to use these language patterns in a normal conversation that you've got to drastically change the way that you speak. But here's the secret. You don't. The fact is, language patterns are used by us every day. All the time, actually. But the trouble is they're usually used for negative things. So, for example, every time someone says, 
I've realized that I'll either fail now or give up. So this is a presupposition of awareness followed by a double bind. Or they might say, a girl might say, um, the more I talk to him, the more I get annoyed, which is a bind. So these are these natural language patterns. So if you start to open your ears, you'll end up finding that people use these patterns of Milton Erickson all the time. And they're just literally a, a natural function of English language. So rather than allowing ourselves to get trapped in our problems with these patterns, why not just try and use them to help free our minds and get what we want from life and help other people do the same. So just keep an ear out for language patterns that you hear in everyday interactions and ask yourself, how can you use these patterns for the results that you want? So, so hopefully now you've got a good idea of what these language patterns are, how they work and how to use them without being locked up. And there's a lot of material online dealing with language patterns, but if you seriously want to step up your game, I suggest you grab the old NLP book called Patterns of the Hypnotic Techniques of Milton H. Erickson, Volume 1. It's not an easy read, but if you can get your head around that and integrate the techniques into what you do, you'll safely be able to say that you've mastered hypnotic language patterns. The Shiny Objects Trap So at the end of this course, I'll be sharing in a bonus appendix where I'll give you 20 hypnotic phrases that incorporate all these hypnotic language patterns and more. At this stage, however, I'm not going to be spending any more time on language patterns, and here's why. Because I believe that they get a disproportionate amount of attention, and this is what I call shiny objects trap. So language patterns seem very cool. You know, a little tricky phrase here or technique that's designed to wrap someone's mind in a hypnotic loop and influence them on a subconscious level. And yes, learning and mastering these, it's, it's a very useful skill. However, everything else that you learn in this course is going to increase your persuasive powers a hundred times more than any fancy patterns. But if you really want to focus more on language patterns, go for it. Just do yourself a Google search, search for hypnotic language patterns, and you'll get a bunch of links that will appear that will teach you about these language patterns. But I think we can do better. So if you'll permit me to move on, let's focus on a technique which is far more powerful than hypnotic language patterns, and it's the key to irresistible influence and effortless conversational influence. Hypnotic stories that change minds and shape emotions. The way to a man or woman's heart is through a story. Stories are all around us and form the bedrock of how we shape our beliefs and even our identities. Political candidates run for election based on the narrative that they tell us about their lives and how it ties in with the narrative of the country that they're hoping to run. President Obama even once said that one of the biggest jobs an American president has is to tell the American people an overarching story that relates to the events of the world and the country and to the lives of the regular people. You're living your own personal narrative. And what we think about ourselves, our own strengths, our weaknesses, and so on, all have their root in the story that we tell ourselves. And these stories often aren't factual, they aren't real. Rather, they're remembered and interpreted by us, and then we spin them and we frame them so that they support and feed the beliefs that we've shaped for ourselves. So successful people, they tend to tell themselves a story about how they learn, overcome failure, and they grow and succeed. And as we know, unsuccessful people, they tell themselves the opposite, a story about how the world is against them and they lack the skills or opportunities that others have. And in order to influence somebody and to really connect with them, you have to understand the story. And since the dawn of civilization, story has shaped and defined the human species, written or spoken, Stories tend to define a culture and they family, friendships, marriage, work relationships and, and even building artworks and songs. These are all stories. And if you don't understand the story, you don't understand life. 
So how do you use the power of a story to influence others and change their minds? And to tap into this incredible force that flows through each of us. So one of the most powerful and persuasive ways is to use stories that mirror the situation that someone else is in without directly referencing it. So this is the key to what people call a therapeutic metaphor. An example of a problem-solving metaphor. Today I took a break from recording to grab a coffee with an old friend. He was feeling a bit down on his luck and he was struggling to motivate himself out of a rut. Rather than giving him a motivational speech and preaching some life lessons, I gently changed the subject and told a story about an interstate trip that I once had. I talked about how I got totally lost and confused in a strange city and having to completely figure things out as I went. Despite having no idea, I made it to where I needed to be. The point I was making was that when you get the courage to drop yourself in a strange and challenging situation, you'll be amazed with how your own resourcefulness will always find a way to pull you through. The story I told mirrored his situation, which was fear to leave his comfort zone and to challenge himself. And it was interesting and it allowed for me to get in some lessons without directly having to say or do anything. Discovering your own personal bank of stories. Even if you think you have an ordinary life, you still have a wealth of stories to use, to motivate, inspire, and persuade others. The key is to search for common themes that will be useful for you as a persuader. Saying something through a story is much more persuasive than just saying something directly. Plus, telling stories can become an art in itself. And when you get good at telling stories which enthrall and entertain, people won't be able to help themselves but hang off every word. So first of all, become an observer of stories, both things that happen to you and things that you read and see on TV. Develop a journalist's eyes for a story and an ear for a yarn and discover interesting characters in your life and read weird and wonderful books. So just think about the last week of your life and ask yourself, what events, stories, ideas, people did you meet, watch, read or hear about that demonstrate the following? Overcoming a problem, finding resources you didn't know you had, learning something new, gaining new energy, changing your worldview, or finding pleasure in life. Even everyday events can become powerful stories. Stories are everywhere. So become a collector of stories and a compulsive storyteller. And the only way to get good and develop your own style is to practice. So make a real effort to tell a story in, in all interactions that you have, if you have time obviously, and see what effect that they have. You'll be stunned by just how much people long for a good story and how even the most trivial and commonplace of everyday things can become a powerful and persuasive story if you let it. Telling a powerful story. When you tell a story, it's essential that you lose yourself in it, transport yourself there, and you'll take your listeners with you. Talk in multiple senses. Use sight, sound, feelings, and even tastes and smells if appropriate to totally make the scene you're creating come alive. And when you first start out as a storyteller, you get a little bit carried away by the energetics and the exuberance of your own story, because that's the starting point. And then you can gradually rein yourself in as you gain more experience and develop that subtlety and finesse that really marks that master storyteller. But first you've got to start off in the air with flair. Throw out your inhibitions, get them out the door, and immerse yourself in that world that you're creating with your words. And as you do, you'll be observing what works and gradually shaping your style and removing what you don't need. And you'll soon be refining what you're good at. Before you know it, you'll be telling stories that people will be hanging off every word. Belief shifting questions that rapidly alter ideas and perspectives. 
Creating change and persuading others often boils down to shifting someone's beliefs, because beliefs are often the underlying reason behind a particular behaviour or resistance. So if you want someone to do something, they must believe certain things. So first of all, they must believe that they're capable of actually doing it, that they're going to benefit from it, that their peers will approve of it, and that it isn't dangerous. So these are not set in stone, of course, but they're a good barometer of the basic underlying beliefs that modulate our actions. Any subtle negative beliefs that fits into one of the four categories could kill your chances of successful persuasion. But using questions, they're a subtle and indirect way to change someone's negative belief and eliminate them without directly attacking them. Unfortunately, our instinctive reaction when someone confronts us with a belief that we want to remove is we sometimes challenge that belief directly. Unfortunately, this belief may be crucial to someone's identity and their self-image, even if it's a negative one. So even if the belief is irrational, they'll do everything they can just to justify and rationalise this belief that you've challenged. And basically you're committing them to make it stronger because they want to justify it. So the best way to challenge a belief is to make them think that they're changing the belief was actually their idea. And this is where the art of questioning comes in. So with questions, you can gradually loosen someone's grip on this negative belief and move to replace it with a more positive, empowering belief instead. So there's five powerful question types that bust unwanted beliefs. And some of these questions come from NLP's meta model. And the meta model is often overlooked in persuasion text, but it's at least as powerful and as useful as the language patterns based on the Milton model. So the meta model allows you to identify the real thought patterns that a belief is wrapped up in and gently ease that belief to the surface. All of these questions eventually aim to sever that belief from the person and break their attachment to it. Remember, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. If you ask these questions in a challenging lawyer-style way, people will just put their backs up. So ask instead from a place of genuine curiosity. Be completely open and allow them to give clear and an honest response without them feeling judged or accused. So you're not out to prove that their beliefs are wrong. Instead, you're kindly allowing them to realise for themselves that these beliefs are not only unhelpful, but they also don't have to be stuck with these beliefs for life. So this is important. One question alone won't work instant magic. We need to gradually and gently guide the questions by layering these questions and similar ones until the belief has been shaken. And this should eventually lead to an epiphany moment when they begin to reorientate their perspective. When the old belief is lost, begin using a story to inspire and create a new belief that is opposite to the one that they had. So let's do a little walkthrough. So say someone has a negative belief. You carefully and gradually use these questions to loosen the belief to the point where they no longer have that same attachment to it. And when the belief has loosened, subtly use stories, the ones we mentioned in the previous section, that mirror the situation to inspire the new belief and give them confidence instead of unconfidence and good instead of bad. So you allow them to get acquainted with the new belief as it has to firmly take place instead of that old one. So in a real interaction, you'll be running with your instincts. This is why it's crucial that you're in rapport the whole time. If you break rapport and you try to think of what was that hypnotic question again, you'll risk losing the potential to create that change. So just tread carefully and be in the moment. So remember the change has to be their idea. So don't go with claiming that credit. Questions. The counter question example. So in this question, we get them to gradually begin to mentally formulate counter examples of the belief they have. So you could ask, what are the situations in which that belief is not true. You could say, when was the last time that you acted contrary to that belief? 
Or you could say, what's the most opposite to that belief thing that you've done recently? You could say, who is more or less of that belief than you? So you're starting to guide them and build them up to a mental catalogue of situations which the belief was false, making it gradually less real. So number two, we've got the source question. So we ask people where they got that negative belief from. And the goal of this is to show them that they're not the source of this negative belief. And that it's not really something that they chose to create for themselves. So the question is, who first told you this belief? How long have you believed that? When did you decide you believed that? So, questions number three. Are the useful challenge? So the usefulness challenge accomplishes two things. First, it begins to dissociate the belief from the reality by having the person view it as a belief and not as a fact. And second, it begins to get them to want to emotionally distance themselves from this belief. So the goal is to get them to realize that it's not the fact that the negative belief has hindered them, it's the fact that they believed it. So remember, it's not the fact that someone is shy that hinders them, it's the fact that they believe that they're shy. So you would ask questions such as, is it useful to believe that? Does believing this help you? Has this belief ever stopped you or got in the way? So number four are the elimination questions. So building on the previous question, this question has them mentally create a world in which the belief just does not exist. And this allows them to begin the process of replacing the negative belief with a positive one and helps them start building a reality that's not dependent on the negative belief itself. So the questions would be, how different would you feel if you believe the opposite to this? What would it be like if you didn't believe that? What would you do, for example, in a situation if you believed the opposite of what you believed? Could you imagine what would happen in your life if you believed the opposite, for example, and I would have mentioned what the opposite would be if you believed that you were more confident? So number five is the overcoming questions. So in these questions, you give them your, their supposed criteria for overcoming the beliefs. So you can work this criteria if it's useful to you or just move beyond it. So the question causes them to give you a clear roadmap for overcoming that negative belief. So it can be extremely useful. So like the two previous questions, it emphasizes the dissociation between fact and belief and begins getting their mind whirring towards the elimination of this belief. So I would ask, what would it take for you to suddenly stop believing this? If you were to suddenly stop believing this, how would you make that happen? How easy would it be for you to suddenly believe the opposite? How suddenly would it be to believe that you're more confident that you could do this? So as you use these questions, you'll understand the principles behind them and the subtle mechanics at play on a deeper level. And soon you'll find yourself just naturally using them in conversations and within yourself to bust your own negative beliefs without you having to even think about it. Remember, none of these techniques are set in stone. So combine these questions with stories and the hypnotic language patterns while speaking persuasively and coming from that solid inner game with that rapport and there'll be no stopping you. So be sure to listen to the bonus section, The Problem Shaker, and it's going to demonstrate many of the principles at play here for you in a real-world setting. The conclusion. We're coming to the end. Relax, though, because in the bonus section you'll find a bunch of potent and practical material that's going to help bring your skills out into the real world. So remember, you're already 
miles ahead than when you began this short course. You know how to speak with authority and confidence. You know how to read and interpret the silent story of body language. You know how to get out of your own way and think and feel like a master persuader. You know the secret to hypnotic language patterns. You know how to tell powerful stories which enthrall as they also transform. You know how to ask questions that destroy negative beliefs and flip problems on their head. You know what Queen Victoria, Stephen Covey and Bernard Burrish had to say and how to get out of your own way. You know how to rapidly gain rapport with almost anyone. And remember, what we're doing here is giving you the principles, constructing the model. You're interpreting people and the world in a useful and empowering way. So these skills are effective, useful, and most importantly, they do work. But they're not the be-all and end-all of communication as a human being. So it's up to you, in your studies, most importantly in your experiences, to fill in the gaps and reconcile any contradictions that you think you've found here. I wish you the best of luck, and I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I have recording.